everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Buhlins and Tennis Part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Glad to be joined by my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. And also what a privilege it is to have on as this week's guest, the youngest anchor in the history of ESPN Sports Center, where he teamed with Craig Kilborn and others to popularize the late night feel-good edition of Sports Center. You're reading, an old, since- you're, you're reading an old press release, man. <laughs> <laughs> Further. Since 2011, this guest has been one of the primary hosts and play-by-play commentators for Tennis Channel. And in 2014, this guest received the high honor of being named the host and master of ceremonies for the annual enshrinement ceremonies at the International Tennis Hall of Fame, a place very special to Steve. If you have not already heard the voice that chimed in, it is our privilege to have Brett Haber join the pod. Brett, to give you a uh, time frame. I was in college in the mid '90s, so I was a big fan of the Feel Good Edition with <laughs> you and Craig and some other people at that time. Oh my gosh, yeah, it's been. Um, I, it's uh, when you read those things. I, I have no idea if they're true anymore, but I'm sure there've been younger guys who've anchored the show since then. Uh, it has been almost. Oh, it's been 25 years since I left that place, but um, yeah, my memories are as fond as as yours were. It, it was. I was there from, from age 24 to 28. Wow. So it was my grad school, you know, I, I had done local television um, in Vermont and Cincinnati before I got there. And, you know, you do four years, 500 give or take sports centers. I felt like at the end of that run, I had been in any and every situation a broadcaster could be in, in live sports studio television and I I felt comfortable that I knew how to get out of you know the the hole when I was down in there uh, to to invoke that old metaphor but uh it was great I when I left there 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 was very little I hadn't seen in a studio I of course uh as as it happens most people who are in the studio want to get out and do play-by-play and a lot of times the guys who do play-by-play want to get into the studio so I was always itching to get out and be at the sporting events more, which ultimately happened later in my career. Uh, to just to stay on that topic for a minute, I mean, you had so many personalities that you were working with at that time. Um, you said you pretty much felt like you experienced, that was your grad school one, and that you experienced so many things um, there. What were certain things that I, I, I guess if you can maybe try to pinpoint uh, one or two things that you took into your net your your next roles which we'll obviously get into a lot in tonight's oh, discussion it's a good question I, I there's kind of two ways to answer that one is just, just situationally we were in a million different positions I mean the idea that you're working on a show where the the, the games and the highlights and the stories you're reporting are sort of unfolding in real time that was more the case for the 11 p.m east coast sports center Craig and I m- mostly did the 2 a.m where games were more complete uh, except for some West coast stragglers than they were on the 11 o'clock edition, but still you learn to be nimble. You learn to, uh, as we used to say back then, read and react, uh, think on your feet, ad lib, uh, be sort of facile and nimble. So, so just from a technical broadcasting standpoint, you, you learn to handle whatever was thrown at you. But I, I was also there at a time when, uh, there were a ton of really talented broadcasters that I worked with, uh, all of whom or many of whom had had really different strengths. So I was there with, as you mentioned, Kilborn, who was my most frequent co-anchor, who was, I think, changed 
the paradigm for sports broadcasting and the way humor was used sometimes over the line, but you know, he was a transcendent figure in sports broadcasting. I was there with Olbermann who is the most and remains the most erudite uh, guy to ever, you know, clip a microphone to his tie. I was there with Dan Patrick who, whose authority and, and, and ease uh, understated uh, was, was second to none. I was there with Mike Tirico, who I mm-hmm. think to, to my mind is the closest thing to the natural that our industry has. The guy is a talent unlike I've, I've ever, I, we used to write scripts for our lead-ins that would be in the teleprompter and we'd read, they'd be 20, 25 seconds. It too long. And you'd read them for a bit. Tariko was the only guy I knew who could sort of on the fly, instead of writing it, he would write like six keywords. They'd be in the prompter and he would look up and somehow his brain worked in a way that he'd look at those six words and out of his mouth would come a fully formed paragraph or two. And I was looking at him and then I was looking at the prompter, seeing the six words, wondering where the full script was. And I, I, that's, I knew that's when this guy was a different, different cat. He he's so uh, again, uh, and there were others too. I mean, from Kenny Maine to Stuart Scott to Rich Eisen and and on down the line. So I, if you're smart and you're in a situation like that, you sponge off of all those guys and their strengths. And and obviously you you stay kind of true to the core of, of who you are. You don't try to imitate other people, but for sure, I was, I was uh, sponging off of, of all those strengths and, uh, if that was my grad school, I, I, had, uh, I had a lot of good professors and I, I had a lot of good classmates. That's great. Thank you for sharing that experience. We do obviously want to focus the rest of this conversation on tennis as this is a tennis podcast. And I'll, I'll pass it on to Steve at this point. Steve's going to uh, ask a little bit about how you even got involved in this sport, whether as a kid or again, as your professor, uh, as your profession later on. Did you play, Brad, at all as a junior and did you have a deep passion for tennis or was it just all of sports? Yeah, no, it was, it was all of sports. I grew up in, in New York city in Manhattan. I played baseball in high school, uh, public high school in New York city. Uh, I tried to play in college and uh, failed. Um, I was not good enough. Um, I play more tennis now uh, than I ever have in my life. In fact, I've never belonged to a tennis club until a year ago. Uh, and I actually joined a tennis club in LA, which is where Tennis Channel Studios are. And I'm there about a quarter of the year. And so I've, I've, I've started playing more, gotten better. I, I mean, I'm no, unfortunately, Steve, um, a lot of people play tennis with their work colleagues. You might pick up a, a match after work. Unfortunately, all my work colleagues are Hall of Famers <laughs> like you. So it's very difficult for me to get you know, as, as a 4 0. I, you know, it's not like Jim Courier and Lindsay Davenport want to go hack around with me out back for a while. So it's, I have a hard time getting a game at work. So I, I joined a club and I take lessons and I play live ball and I am getting better and my shoulder hurts and my elbow hurts. And I'm, you know, a 53 year old four uh, zero. So uh, no, but I, I fell in love with the sport very early. I growing up in New York, I used to sneak into the U S open and I, I, I just always loved the one-on-one nature of tennis, even though I wasn't a particularly good player. Uh, I, I loved the personalities. I loved Borg McEnroe. I loved Connors and Ash and that American crowd, obviously not Borg American, but um, back before Arthur Ashe stadium existed when Armstrong was the primary stadium, 
you guys will remember that uh, the catering kitchens for the suites and the restaurants, the, the, the back doors of those kitchens would open up onto Flushing Meadows Park. And if you were an enterprising young teenager like I was in 1991, I guess I wasn't a teenager at that point. That was my senior year in college. Uh, you could go into Flushing Meadows Park. And when the catering chefs went out to take a cigarette break, if you slid them a 20, you, they'd let you in through the catering kitchen. And that is how I got in for Connor's Crickstein 91. And then once you're on the grounds and in the building, you can kind of weasel your way up into a seat, which is what I did numerous times. And uh, that was how I, you know, before I was a broadcaster, got uh, my first taste of pro tennis. That's interesting. But Brett, what about the other, you, you had obviously a great love of all the sports. Is yeah. that about if is that how you envision your career that you would be doing a, a number of sports and that you would stay as sort of an all-purpose sports broadcaster as opposed to the tennis figure that you've become? Yeah. Especially when you started at Sports Center really young. Yeah. So no, I, I don't know that I had thought that through. Um I, I did love all sports as a kid. I was a huge hockey fan. I grew up Rangers, Knicks, Giants. Um what am I, what sport am I? Oh, Yankees. Jesus Christ. Um, in fact, I grew up on the East side of Manhattan and whenever a Rangers player got hurt and was taken to Lenox Hill hospital on 77th between Lexington and park, um, my friend, there were like five or six of my friends and I would get on our bikes and try to beat the ambulance from Madison square garden to Lenox Hill hospital, because we knew there was a chance that the player would have to have his Jersey cut off or he would give his Jersey to one of us kids and I have Rayo Rootsalainen's number 29 Rangers jersey from uh, the entryway to Lenox Hill Hospital from when I was about 16 years old. Wow, that's like ambulance chasing to a new meeting that's, right there. That's true. <laughs> Listen, I have to just quickly interject, Brett, that as a kid, I also was growing up in New York, first Connecticut. I was a big Yankees fan. So when I was about 12, 1964, Elston Howard of the Yankees went oh into Lenox Hill. <laughs> and a friend of mine and I, one of my schoolmates and I went by Lennox Hill knowing he was there. We just went into the lobby and, and they rang his room and we said, we have a box of chocolate for Mr. Howard. He Get came, out of here. Not kidding. He came down to the lobby and greeted us and talked to us for about 10 minutes, thanked us for the chocolate and went back upstairs. That's crazy. I, I mean, <laughs> that's New York. I, I was a, a crazy Yankee fan. I was at the... My dad, I was seven years old. I was at the Chris Chambliss home run game at the 76 ALCS, ran on the field with my dad. I had a patch of grass from right field at Yankee Stadium that I put in a Ziploc bag that I sat in my bedroom for 12 years. It, it, I think people would walk in and thought I had a, like a, a dime bag of, of pot, but I, I assured everyone that that was the remnants of the dust and dirt <laughs> from, <laughs> from right field at Yankee Stadium. I was, I was a New York sports fan. I scored... I would sit at home and keep a scorecard of the Rangers games and the Knicks games. Um, but yeah, I, I, to, to become a specialist, I actually think I, after I fell in love with tennis and, and became somewhat of a specialist at ESPN, um, I, I wanted to do that more and more. And um, yeah, I think about there, I, I know it's funny. I've lost so much of my general sports knowledge because I spent so much energy on tennis and my bandwidth is, is limited. Um, I don't know nearly as much about other sports as I used to, but yeah, I, I, I think in this world of, of specialization and 
especially niche broadcasting and, and all the different independent networks that, that now exist to service each one of the, the sports, it's probably not the worst play in the world to, to, to be micro on a sport as opposed to matters, you know, there aren't that many tennis specific broadcasters in the world. There's a ton of guys who know if you put me in a room of a thousand guys and you measured them and, and women, not just guys, uh, you measured general sports knowledge, I would probably finish in the bottom half of that thousand guys and girls and women and men. Um, but thankfully that's not the, uh, that's not the metric we use to, to give people jobs or it's, at least it's not all of it. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure I know you know this, but I'll say it anyway, because it'll bring a smile to both your faces. Uh, if you lived under a rock, you may not know, but uh, as a Yankee fan, Aaron judge, you guys just locked up Aaron judge again. So big, <laughs> big money, big money. They, they paid some big money for him. I thought he was a giant for a while last night. I was nervous. <laughs> he was, yeah, there was rumors. He was a giant for a couple hours, but the Yankees locked him up. So, um, all right, I, I do want to uh, approach a topic that is uh, you guys are both um, intricately involved in, and that's the uh, International Tennis Hall of Fame. Steve, you were inducted in 2017. Brett, you've been a part of that um, induction for a number of years. I'll let kind of Steve and you, I, I'm going to be an interested listener to this topic. Um, I'll let Steve kind of ask you on what what your thoughts of, of the places, why it's so special, and and I'll let Steve go from there. Yeah, Brett, talk just a little bit because you've done a great job up there uh, as master ceremonies. What that role has meant to you. I've obviously seen it up close and been lucky enough to be a part of it as a Hall of Famer. But you, you've, you've been doing that, I guess, since 2014. Talk about how that came about and what it's meant to you to annually come back to Newport for the festivities. It is truly the one of the, if not the biggest honor uh, of my professional life to have that position. I, I had been associated with the Hall of Fame prior to 2014 in that, uh, and you know this well, Steve, uh, the, the Legends or the Champions Dinner that takes place the night before the enshrinement ceremony is something that I've been emceeing for almost 20 years now. Um, the enshrinement ceremony itself is something that I took over um, when uh, our, our great friend Hall of Famer Bud Collins was, was uh, started to be unable because of his health to continue in his role as the, you know, the forever MC and, and forever voice of the Hall of Fame. And he always will be. Uh, and I'm acutely aware of the fact that I uh, am doing a job that he crafted and honed and created and will ever be associated with. He was, uh, Bud was extraordinarily kind to me as I was asked to start to transition and always was. And in fact, um, <laughs> His, uh, his beautiful widow uh, gave to me and, and to some other people too. I don't want to make it like it was just a, an honor she gave to me, but uh, a couple of, of Bud's bow ties that uh, I cherish and, and keep with me. And I, I don't really wear bow ties, um, but uh, Anita gave me two or three of them and I wear them every year at the enshrinement ceremony as, as a pocket square in my sport coat. And I feel like Bud... Um, I, I feel Bud's spirit and I know that it's his, it's his hallowed ground, but, um, he was very kind to me and, uh, to be there in that place that preserves and memorializes the history of the sport honors, the legends of the sport, the contributors, uh, like Steve who've transcended, uh, their field 
to contribute to the sport in immense ways. Um, it's a sport of history. And so it, it's, it's, it's a sacred thing. I, I think you both know, and Steve, you, you know that I'm, I crack wise uh, as part of my <laughs> milieu in broadcasting. And, and I like to have a joke uh, there. Not that you can't smile and have fun with it, but that that's not that weekend, that Saturday, the, the, the ceremony is not the time for that. It's, it's a time to, to honor and be, Solemn's the wrong word, but but uh, august about the history of the sport, not uh, muck about. And I just feel, I get goosebumps there. The history of the casino in Newport is is epic. Uh, you know, Steve and I could could talk for hours. I know he's not just a member of the Hall of Fame now, but a a student of its history. And to to walk there and to be entrusted with sort of you know being the traffic cop of, of those events. Uh, is something I'm, I'm deeply, deeply proud of. And, and uh, to say nothing of Newport, which is a great town, and, and Todd Martin, who uh, on his way out now has done an incredible job uh, in taking the next steps after Mark Stunning had done such a great job for decades. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blathering on. I just feel, I feel so strongly about the place and about this honor. And um, I, I, uh, I take it very, very seriously. And I'm, I'm humbled to have it. Fred, I remember going to so many ceremonies and, and there was a stretch in the 90s where you had Chrissy, you had Martina, you had McInerney, Lendl, and what and the pattern in those years and certainly among the great players of the modern era was that they would go in alone. There might be a great player, a Mervyn Rose in the past, but basically they had the spotlight to themselves. Last year, yeah. it was just for Leighton Hewitt because he was supposed to, as you know, go in the year before, but because mm -hmm. of COVID problems and everything, couldn't come till last year. Does that one stand out to you in some ways? Because to me, I thought it was a very special ceremony that he could have it to himself. He could speak as long as he wanted, and he did certainly didn't overdo it. And that there, there could be this focus just on him, as opposed to, and not to say that the year before with the original nine wasn't magnificent, but what did you think of that last year to have one headliner? It was nice and it was relaxed and I, and Leighton was, was his remarks were outstanding. I think uh, Rochi and Nuke kind of stole the show uh, with their yeah. both video and their in-person remarks uh, at the dinner the night before. Yeah, it was, the pacing was, especially when we've had years, a couple of years ago when we transitioned from the day ceremony to the night ceremony and we ran into some lighting problems and yeah. here, God bless her, went a little long. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, things had been more stressed but you're right that had a very relaxed pacing to it and it was great for everybody to be able to focus on Leighton um I think people you know for for better or worse one of the byproducts of this era that we've been in and that we're I don't know that we're coming out of but Rogers retired and Rafa is nearer the end than the beginning and Novak we don't know uh those three guys have dominated men's tennis uh, so severely for 15 years that we don't have uh, the same depth of, of, of nominees that we might have had and have had in other eras. So I think we've been worried that we might have a year or so where we wouldn't have anyone. And that's what this past year was going to be had Leighton right. not been right. played by uh, COVID. But I think we're about to run out of that problem, right? Because we've got I mean, between Serena and, and although Venus hasn't officially announced, that would seem to be coming very soon. And Roger and then Rafa and then, you know, down the line, I think we're going to be good. I, I don't I don't mind the uh, I don't mind the crowded years. I think 
Uh, you know, now we have every four years the contributors and every four years the wheelchair. And I know this, this coming year will be a wheelchair year. Um, so we'll have that uh, to celebrate. But I, I'm fine with it. I think uh, especially when we can have international um, inductees, because it's funny, I was with Kim Kleisters this weekend in Orlando at a Champion Series event. As you know, uh, Kim's been named uh, one of the co-presidents of the Hall of Fame, replacing Stan Smith. And Kim makes the point when she talks about her new responsibilities that growing up in Belgium, Hall of Fames aren't a thing. It's not something that they have to honor athletes at the end of their careers. And so it's not something as a result that athletes aspire to. So part of what she wants to accomplish is to sort of change the culture and the culture of expectation among athletes and, and sports fans there to, to make it a more global thing. And uh, I think she's right to want to do that. And I, it's, a, it's a, an admirable goal. So, you know, we had an Australian this year. Uh, we're going to have some Europeans coming up uh, in the next few years. If we can make it even more of a global institution than it already is, I think that's a great thing to aspire to. I know that this, the ring ceremonies that they've instituted the last, I don't know what it is, six, seven, eight years where they go to tournament sites and present a Hall of Famer with his or her uh, ring at sort of their home tournament or a tournament near where they live, that, 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 that's a great way to sort of get foreign fans outside the U.S. To, to, to learn more about the Hall of Fame. I think that's been a great initiative. And, uh, you know, I, I think that'll only continue. So I, I, li- I don't mind more, especially if they're, if they're global uh, enshrinees. No, that's great that you guys both have so many uh, positive experiences about such a special place. Uh, you know, like you said, it, it just dominates. It, it illustrates the history of the game. And there's so much, so much history to this great, great and, sport. And by the way, just for, hey, if you've never been to Newport in the summer, am I right, Steve? I mean, there's a, oh. the worst places you could spend a weekend. Oh, my <laughs> You couldn't be more right, and uh, not to mention the clam chowder up there, Brad. Come on. I mean, <laughs> I'll see you at the Black Pearl on uh, July 17th, my friend. <laughs> All the listeners, you got the, you got the recommendation right there. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned Roger, Rafa, Novak, and obviously what tennis conversation. Um, there, there's never a tennis conversation that goes that you don't mention the big three, right? I want to talk about the Friday night um, at Labor Cup that's in September. A couple months ago, and and we're all huge sports fans. I've illustrated that earlier in the call. Um, I want to know your view about that specific Friday night with Roger and Rafa, because I, my view, I will put that moment up against any huge, huge, huge sports moment in the history of all the sports. And and then you look at it from an angle of tennis, which is so unique in that these are two bitter, bitter rivals bitter rivals and the respect that they have for each other and the friendship that got developed. You know, a lot of these friendships develop after people's playing days are over, especially rivals, especially rivals. That was not the case. Their friendship was special as they were playing in the biggest events. Obviously it had to grow. Um, It didn't, it it wasn't there from the get-go, but obviously it developed over time. The result to me was totally inconsequential but the moment itself of Roger and Rafa pairing up together and playing together, I'll remember that night forever. And not just as a tennis fan that I am, but as a sports fan in general. I, I believe, and, and guys, you should feel free to disagree with me. The image of the year in tennis, and there, boy, were there a lot of them this year. To me, the image of the year in tennis is the shot of Roger and Rafa holding hands on the Team Europe bench 
as the ceremonies were unfolding to honor Roger after they lost the doubles match. Um, if that didn't put a tear in your eye, if you're a sports, I mean, tennis fan, sports fan, Roger fan, Rafa fan. I mean, I know sometimes the fan bases, it, it needs to be binary. If you're a Roger fan, you can't be a Rafa fan and vice versa. I never totally understood that, but um, you're right. They respect each other. It wasn't necessarily the smoothest relationship at the very, very beginning of their careers, but you're, you're so right for the last decade or more, it's been beyond warm. It's been two guys uh, in a very small club of people who could conceivably understand what it's like to walk in each other's shoes and to live this life. Um, I, 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 we are so, I mean, we all know how lucky we are in golden age and 2021, 22. And yeah, Djokovic is probably going to end up being on top of the numerical chart of everything, but um, good grief. I mean, the, the stewards of sort of the, the pillars of, of what this sport is built on the fact that Roger and Rafa who are, uh, you know, have, have conducted themselves, comported themselves, interacted with each other the way they have. I mean, what a, what a gift to this sport that those are the guys who have carried the flag on the men's side for the last 15 years. And I, I don't, I, I know them all. I, I don't know any of them well enough to consider them friends. I don't, I, I'm, I, I don't like to overstate that as a journalist, right? I mean, uh, first name basis, yes. Friends, no. But I, I certainly know a lot of people who are close with both of those guys. I, I work with Paul Anacone, who coached Roger for a number of years. I have yet to hear, and I'm not joking around, you, you, you could, every athlete has bad stories and good stories. Every person, you get them on a bad day. And if you judge them by that, it's, it's probably not pretty. I've yet to hear a story in 20 years of public life about Roger Federer that is unflattering. I've, in all my interactions, in all the interactions that have been related to me by people that are genuinely close to them, I've not heard one story where they've acted a jerk, where they've been less than what you would hope your sports idols to be. And uh, man, that's tough to do when you've been in the spotlight as long as those two guys have. And this isn't taking anything away from Djokovic, who is an admirable character in, in his own right and, and is complicated and has made some missteps. And that's a separate issue. But for now, Roger and Rafa, I am in awe of it's easy to be in awe of what they did between the lines. I'm in awe of the people they are and the way they have promoted sportsmanship and fair play and, and uh, relationships and the sport in general. I, I'm, that's the thing I wonder if we'll look at. It hasn't always been the case, right? I mean, Steve, you've seen some of the greatest rivals who've not always uh, either gotten along with each other or represented themselves in the best light. Uh, that cannot be said about either of these two guys. No, I can't. And frankly, I, I want to just... Uh... I want to say that I, I think Novak really should be, I, I, when, by the time he retires, I think there may be a slightly different view of him. It was very hard for him to always be compared to these two, Brett. But we'll, I, don't, I don't want to get so much into, I don't want to get carried away with my views. We're here to talk to you tonight. So what I want to know from your standpoint, because I, you're, we always see you in the booth and often you're in there with, with Jim Curry or Paul Anacone and, you're setting them up. You're the play-by-play -play man. And so you will come in here and there with your viewpoints. But I would love to hear you now talk about these three as players 
and as people, but first as players and, and weigh in a bit on the GOAT debate and how you, what your criteria is, how you view it, because everybody has a different way of looking at that. What is yours? So uh, thanks. I, I, listen, I, I usually stay in my lane with this stuff because I, I have the privilege, as you just mentioned, of working next to some pretty amazing players, whether it's Jim or Paul or Lindsay or Tracy or uh, Chanda or uh, any of our other analysts, and, and I'm right to defer to them. But since you asked, um, I believe that the GOAT debate is a complete fool's errand, and I am not taking the bait. And that's probably not the answer you wanted. No, no. I, I think it's, impossible, it's an impossible question to answer, and it depends what your metric is, right? The first thing is, Roger is basically five years older than the both of them. So it's, it's, it, you can't, it's not apples to apples in terms of who was playing whom in the prime of their career. The fact that Roger came back and did what he did in 2017 after six months away and put another two majors on the board at that age, I think is pretty impressive. But detractors point out that he has a losing head-to-head against both Novak and Rafa, and that's true. But I think you have to factor in the age difference. Um, you know, people like to conveniently say that you know, Novak's the best player ever on hard. Rafa's obviously the best player ever on clay and Rogers, the best player ever on grass. I'm, I don't think anybody's going to argue that. Um, I, but I'm, I'm I will not, give you a, Brett, I will give you a slight argument on the lap. On, on because, grass. Cause you're going to give me labor. No, I'm going to give you Sampras. Okay. That's fair. But, but, but he's no, totally I, look now. sorry, go ahead. I think, Pete gets, I think Pete gets incorrectly overlooked now. I think you're right to bring him up. Yeah. Brett, yeah, it's funny you said that because they're the subject of the book that our uh, uh, my co-host Steve Flink actually wrote on Pete Sampras' greatness revisited. Hit on that point exactly. So for everybody who's listening, absolutely, um, go get that book because it's a great book and it's based. It, it illustrates what you just said that in the greatness of these big of this big three, Pete has gotten overlooked quite a bit just because of what these three guys have done, which is incredible. But- but also the thing that I know Steve points out is that Pete won his last major, you know, two. He had gone more than two years prior to that U.S. Open title without winning not just a slam, but if I'm not mistaken, he hadn't won a tournament of any kind Correct. in the two years plus leading up to that U.S. Open title. Yeah. And that was right around the time when the balls and the surfaces were starting to change and when the balls at Wimbledon changed, when the grass got a little taller, when the clay at Roland Garros started to get a little faster and all the three primary surfaces started to, to, to say they resemble each other is, is a bit of an overstatement, but certainly resembled each other more than they ever had in the past. And so what I would say in defense of people like Pete Sampras, not that he needs my defense, but just to defend his number of 14 against their 2021 and 22 and whatever they end up being, I think you could rightly ask the question, does Rafa win Wimbledon twice if the grass played like it played 25 years ago? Does Roger win Roland Garros? One, and Roger's a very good clay court player for a long time, was the second best clay court. Does he win? So I don't know that it's fair to measure the, the, the major totals of this current, the way the majors are set up against the way they used to be set up. I mean, go back further, right? Three of the four were on grass. It, they, they were much different than they were. I don't, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, even East 
Vucevic winning Wimbledon, does he win Wimbledon the way it's set up now? I, I don't know that he does. Um, but I think that's an important thing to remember uh, when you think about Pete getting 14 with the tournament set up the way they used to be. Brett, let me ask you this, though, just to return to the big three now. And I, I, I get your point about the fool's errand. But from your perspective as an observer, each man at their best. I mean, you broke down the surfaces. Any thoughts there about, you know, your personal <laughs> enjoyment in watching them or how you assess them personally as, you know, from from any angle? Yeah, I, I mean, it's so... It's so it's surface specific. I, I, I hate to say that. I mean, if you were building that, I mean, Roger, to me, is the most pleasing to watch because it, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said before. It's the most balletic. It's the most flowy. It's the most artistic. It's he hovers above the court, all that stuff. Rafa's movement is so powerful and brutish and uh, muscular and, and he, he muscles all of all that topspin and Novak bends and twists and uh, contorts himself in ways that seem uh, extra skeletal. Um, so yeah, I mean, fighting spirit, I would take Rafa. If I needed uh, a money serve of the three, I would take Roger. If I needed a volley, I, that's actually close. I might take Rafa over. If I needed a baseline rally one on a hard, I'd take Novak. I don't, I, we're splitting hairs. I mean, it's a tough one and I hate it because it also in our the latest is the greatest mentality that we necessarily subscribe to it negates the Sampras's and the Lavers and the Emerson's and the Borgs and the Connors and the McEnroe's and everybody else who had between six and 11 and 12 and 14 majors but I mean are you are you telling me I mean, Rob was small, so I don't know how he would have translated at five eight or to, to the modern game because it's so power based. But I mean, these athletes who dominated their times, given the tools that modern players have today, are we are, are we actually saying that those guys would be less than? I have a hard time diminishing those. You guys. can't compare, generate right? It's just a whole. It's a different it's game. It's different for that reason too. So I, I just don't. It, it, it's unanswerable and it's, it's great fodder for TV and podcasts. And we've asked a question. I think more and more of my colleagues at tennis channel are sort of taking, I mean, we've, we've done it for so long. We've been asked, I think we're taking a pass. I mean, I, I'm not speaking for anybody. That's not like a company policy or anything, but I, I feel like a lot of my colleagues have started to be like, you know what? I, I don't know how to answer that question. There is no right answer. Whatever your answer is, you're going to piss off. 67 percent tennis fan <laughs> yeah. public yeah. so i also think you could i also think you can spin it the stats are so intertwined that whoever your pick is you can you can have arguments for and arguments against whoever that pick is uh -huh. um, you could spin the you could spin all the results that are out there any which way you want because and, they're and also go one further on that and then and by the way uh, take as much time as you need i'm sure people will start to get bored hearing my voice but i'm um, let me i'll wrap up the goat thing with this People are, say, are saying, well, we'll never see this again. Uh, and, and we may never see this again with three guys doing what they're doing. But when people ask the question, is Novak going to end up as the overall leader in tennis history? I think he will for a period of time after they're all retired. But I'm not convinced at all that 
there's nobody out there that's going to ever break whatever Novak's final number is. And the reason I feel that is precisely what we just said is that we've got three of them at the same time. What were the odds that that would happen? And they have basically the identical number of major titles. So if, if one guy comes along in an era who is, and that person may not be born yet, maybe it's Carlos Alcaraz, I don't know. But if, if a guy comes along and he is head and shoulders above, because the three of them are head and shoulders above everybody of their generation. It just so happens there are three of them. But if, they're, if the next generation comes along and it's one guy and the surfaces remain as similar as they are, where a guy with a particular set of skills, to use Liam Neeson's phrase, uh, can win all four majors, who's to say somebody's not going to get 30 or 35 or whatever if he's the dominant guy without two other guys stealing majors from his total? I agree so, Fred, with, it, with about- that statement. What I, will add, what I will add is I am confident that anyone who's born today, and I hope everybody lives a long, long time, anyone who's alive today, they will never see someone surpass Rafa's 14 at Roland Garros. It may happen. It may happen for someone who's unborn, but anyone who was born today will never see that record. Dude, that, I'm seems like most, that seems like the most <laughs> untouchable of them all, yeah. So, Brett, you alluded to the future. Give us your thoughts on... The, the generation, I mean, because obviously maybe Rapa, maybe Rapa plays another year. Maybe Novak plays two or three more years. Looking beyond that, will Carlos, do you see him putting up really big numbers? Did you, how, how lofty is your praise for him after what we saw from him this year and winning the U.S. Open and rising to number one? And then looking at Sinner and Holger Runa and a few others. What are your thoughts on, on, on the, that, that gang? Yeah, I think it's a great gang. And, you know, if the measuring stick is this generation that, that we're just now starting to say goodbye to, and, and in Novak's case has any number of years remaining, it, it's a tough to, to compare. And at 19, it's so hard, you know, you, you guys know, tennis talent is so hard to extrapolate. I mean, from juniors to the tour, and then from 19 to 25, to 29, to 35, so much of it is health-based. Um, I mean, Alcaraz, boy, I mean, he looks like the real deal for all, you know, anything that you can use to measure his success by. And the fact that the first one he got ended up being at the U.S. Open, which I don't think that's what people would have predicted. I think that sends a good sign that he's a man for all seasons and all surfaces. I think his relationship with Juan Carlos Ferrero seems to be one of the most constructive, healthy player-coach relationships that, that we've seen. He seems eager. He seems like a hard worker. He seems not to be taken by the trappings of having become number one. He seems to have a head on his shoulders. I mean, it's really hard to know, you know, the truth of what goes on inside. But all, all signs point to this guy's going to be great. And uh, if he got one as a teenager, that, that's a good sign. Then, you know... I don't know. Rude, Sitsipas, Medvedev, Rublev, Fritz, Herkoc, Oje Aliasim, and in the conversation, Sparev, and as you said, Runa, who finished the year 11. Um, who's going to emerge out of that group, right? Zverev ought to have one by now. Um, that ankle injury was devastating. Uh, team has one. Medvedev has one. Uh, but one. Um, 
I don't know. Who's going to, who do you think is going to emerge out of that group? I, I mean, I'm hearing that Australia, the tennis balls are playing super fast and that the, the big hitters, the, the, uh, the big servers are going to do well down there this January. I don't know. I mean, I mean, every time I'm not, I don't know which one of those guys after Alcaraz, who's the, who's the front runner after Alcaraz from all the names I just mentioned guys. Well, that's a tough call. It, you know, it, could be Sinner. I've been a little surprised. I want to get your thoughts on that. I thought Sinner would have been a little further along by now than he is. Not that he hasn't been incredibly impressive. And that match with Alcaraz was a gem at the U.S. Open. But I, I thought perhaps he would have made more strides. But I'm still encouraged about him. And if Zarev can get healthy, I see a bunch more majors for him. But I do believe that Alcaraz, I want to get your thoughts there, that he he will be the king of the hill uh, when we when we get past the uh, Novak and Rafa and after they retire we're going to see him win a, a slew of majors I, I think you're right and and though he did I, I want to be clear about this he finished number one in the world I will say for the record that I believe that at this moment or or at the moment that the season ended Novak Djokovic was the best player in the world yeah, uh, yeah. and I don't think too many people would argue that right Alcaraz was number one he earned it uh, obviously Djokovic was limited in how much he could play last year I think he was the best player in the world um, to your center point. It was a, a slight step backwards, right? He went from finishing last year, number 10 to this year, number 15, uh, just the one title. Uh, he is still yet to get past a major quarterfinal. I say still, yeah. he doesn't turn 22 until August. Um, I don't know. Yeah. He's amazing. Uh, and I, by the way, I think Sebi Corda is amazing. And I think, uh, there are a bunch of Americans now that are, and I think Francis Tiafo had a huge breakthrough this year. And um, I don't know. I think he, Felix, I'm, I think Felix, if you look not this past US Open, incredible. but if you look at the matches that Felix has lost to in the slams, he's lost to some the, the top, top players and have played them extremely, extremely close. He obviously got his tournament uh, winless streak out of the way this past year. Um, I think he could have a huge, huge year. Um, I know we it's getting late and we can talk a long, long time. Maybe a quick hitter question for yeah. you, Brett, um, in the booth. And this, these could be, they could be the same match or it could be different matches. Proudest moment in the booth and best match you have ever covered. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I don't know. Should I have asked you that given you some time to think about that? If you don't have it right off the top um, of your head, you don't need so to answer it. I think the, <laughs> this is going to be a funny answer. I can't necessarily pr proudest moment there. They're, I don't know. There it's like in anybody's job. I think there's some days when everything just gels and you're working well with your partner and, and you're saying the right things and the match gives you a canvas to paint that that's easy. So I, I don't know. My proudest moments are probably when I've had the discipline to shut up. And that is something that all of us who do this, remind either remind ourselves or need to remind ourselves that you know this sport has a rhythm to it that doesn't require a constant soundtrack of words um it has its own sounds the tennis often tells the story and so i think that the thing that i'm most proud of is that almost as a network tennis channel has really encouraged its announcers and the announcers have bought in to as the match gets critical and talking about for all in a set on, you'll, you'll find the commentary start to taper. 
and you'll you'll find games that go without speech and laying out and letting the match speak for itself i think is is something we're we're all proud of now we're there for a reason we tell stories we try to give people reasons to care about players they may not know i think there's a lot of early in matches biographical information anecdotal information our analysts are amazed amazing at using the advanced metrics and data to prove points with Hawkeye and other uh, stuff. Jim is amazing at that. So picking the right times to, to tell those stories and when not to, I think those are the things we're most proud of. The matches that I would say are the most exciting that I, I haven't always called finals. We haven't always had the rights to certain matches. Um, the Wimbledon match 2019, the Federer Djokovic, would that have been the final with the match? Yeah, it was. Yeah. And Brett, I want you just to talk. That's exactly where I wanted to lead you. You just sort of alluded, you just alluded to it about dropping back, backing off. There was a classic case of that. And I personally thought, having heard it when I got home, I was there, but I watched your broadcast when I got home, that you and Jim did an extraordinarily good job of that in Here's a match that goes to 13-12 in the fifth in the finals of Wimbledon. Djokovic overcoming Federer from double match point down. And it did strike me, listening to it when I returned, that both you and Jim did a masterful job of that. Thanks for saying that. I think it may have just been that after five hours, we were both out of stuff to say. (laughs) Um, No, I, I, I think, you know, at that point, there's some historical perspective that I know I wanted to give late in that match, which was, for me the history of the two of them deep in slams with match points. And I was thinking of the U S open. I, I think it was back-to-back semifinals in 2010, 2011 yeah, yeah. The forehand that returned that Djokovic hit in 2011. Uh, so once you, you give a little context, I mean, what, what else do you need to say at 12 all fifth set five hours in between those two legends? So, you know, thanks for, for saying that. I think that's probably right up there. And then, you know, it's funny. There are other matches that stand out for me for other reasons that amuse, <laughs> amuse me. There was a match two, I, mean, I want to say three years ago at the city open in DC that Jim and I called between Sitsipas Curios, the shoes, the shoes, the shoes. Yeah. Leander pays is up in the crowd, lacing up his shoes and Curios <laughs> is like hand delivering them on a pillow and, he was crowdsourcing the serve location on. It was one of those matches that was just chaos. I mean, a lot of curious matches are, but it was it had everything, and it wasn't in the grand scheme of a season or a life or a career. The match itself was not. It wasn't a major. It was a five hundred. I, I I'll never forget that day. Jim and I were just. Now what? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's in a sport where a lot of tennis balls are hit back and forth in the same direction. That match was different. So we, we, sometimes we like different. But uh, Brett, you and Jim seem to have a particularly good rapport. You, you've done great work with Paul Anacon and all the others you mentioned, but there there's clearly something uh, exceptional about the working relationship you have with Jim. Talk about that. And do you feel that as a result of the kind of mutual respect that you have for each other, that it maybe that's brought out some of your best work? I, I believe you're right, um, and you're also right about the first thing that you said, which is that our our staff of analysts is a uh, a squad of of equals, and there's nobody that there's it's not a hierarchy. I've never seen 
a group of people support each other. We, we do a lot of traveling together. We're on the road a lot. That is a good family that we have there. And a lot of people uh, who have each other's back 12 months out of the year. And, I, and I, there's not a single one of them that isn't fun to work with. Jim is a special, special person. He's a special talent. I've known Jim for over 30 years. Uh, he's, I, I, I don't, I'm not, there's a term in our business that, that is derogatory, but I'll throw it out there. Uh, the term is jock sniffer. And it's a derogatory term used about sports journalists who try to cozy up to athletes too much because, you know, we want to feel cool or whatever. We're not cool. I feel like I'm reciting the script of almost famous between Lester <laughs> and William Miller. We're not cool. Um, so I, I don't, I've never tried to ingratiate myself to athletes or, 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 you know, I've never tried to be a locker, hang around the locker room guy. I just, I got to know Jim organically. He is one of the most thoughtful, most introspective, most uh, genuinely interested in you people that I've ever come across who had been an elite athlete. I think in tennis in particular, because it's an individual sport, it has to be about you and to the exclusion oftentimes of niceties and caring about other people it's a, and so for Jim to have been number one in the world a four-time major champion and, and done everything he needed to do to, to become that and then to stop playing and pivot to become the person that he's become the whole person the the businessman the broadcaster the father and husband the friend the colleague who is not putting on an act but is truly a curious citizen of this world I am beyond uh, impressed with him and, and in awe of him. And he's really good at broadcasting. He, he does it, I mean, I think our, he does it for Australia. He does it in England. Um, Please charge battery. Um, battery. Somebody losing their battery? Um, no, we're good. <laughs> but he, he, he just, he's, he's so engaged and he's really good at breaking down data. He's really good at using Hawkeye to illustrate a point. He's really good at um, making a lay person understand what he went through and what's happening in a match through his eyes. He's funny. He is erudite. He is smart. He is, um, he's a good storyteller. So yeah. And I, I just, uh, I, I think the world of him and we do have a, a little uh, ham and egg uh, thing that we do together that seems very natural and we don't plan things out, but uh, we know how to get each other where each other needs to be. And um, he's just, he's an enormous talent and I do feel connected to him. And uh, as I do to, to, to Lindsay and Tracy and Paul and Chanda, but uh, we have a long, long relationship. Um, one of my first friends in the sport, uh, he was my first dinner out after my son was born 20 years ago and um I, boy i could not i could not speak more highly of jim courier that's great thank you for for sharing that and uh, you know before we end and i'm going to ask you for your thoughts about someone who has had quite a history with jim um before we get to that i want to ask steve if you have any other uh any other closing questions you want to ask and then we'll we'll wrap it up with with a final thought no, just quickly, Brad, you know, you've been at this a long time. Where, where do you see yourself 10, 15 years from now? I hope right here, Steve. I, I, I love this job. And um, I am, I mean, listen, we, we all have ambitions. I've had, a, I've had a, 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 a blessed career. I've done some exciting things. 
Um, I've done the Olympics. I've done every, you know, Super Bowls and World Series and NBA Finals and all that jazz. I, I work at a place uh, in a sport that I have coveted for my entire career. And, and I work at a place where the people are, not, and I've mentioned a lot of the on-airs, our, our off-air team is, is insanely talented and, and kind. Um, our executive team is, is so humane and, and kind. I, um, we've all worked for jerks in our, our time. The, the, the privilege of not once you've worked for a jerk and you have the, 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 uh, you have the privilege of not working for one, it's, it's something you don't want to run away from. And so the fact that we, we take the position we have very seriously, you know, we have fun. We don't take ourselves seriously, but we feel like most weeks of the year, we, we feel like the flag carriers for tennis on television. We, we, we wave the flag 52 weeks a year. Uh, we know that it's what, what it requires to follow the sport. It can't be a part-time pursuit if you want to be fully engaged in it. So where do I want to be? I want to be right here. I want to uh, I, I want to grow as Tennis Channel grows, and uh, I want to see what's what's next. I, I, I mean, that, that 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 may sound particularly um, unglamorous or unambitious. Uh, I, I am ambitious, and um, so so's our network and. Uh, when you think about the fact that we didn't exist 20 years ago, there was no such thing. And the tennis television, remember, I mean, Steve knows this better than most. Tennis tournaments, even majors, they were not televised yeah. 14 days. Right. right. The final, and you might get a tape delayed from Wimbledon. So the fact that there's a network now that does this all year and has studio shows that talk about it and has analysts that, that think about it and producers and writers and creative team that, that, that spends their life dealing with this sport. I mean, I think that's a service to the fans that I'm glad to be a part of. And I, I don't, I, I, if, if I have anything to do with it, I, I ain't going anywhere. Uh, you know, we, we typically don't like to end these episodes on, on somewhat of a sad note, but I need to ask your thoughts. Um, yeah. Steve, we'll probably talk about it more in the, our year end episode, but we recently lost a, a, a pioneer, a true legend, um, just a few days ago, and that's a legendary Nick Boletari. I mean, he coached what at one point coached ten world number ones. Um, his footprints all over the sport. I mean, basically, he was the academy model that everybody tried to copy. Um, I I would be uh, remiss not to ask you for some thoughts on Nick um, before we end this conversation. Yeah, I mean, everybody has had their Nick stories the these past couple of days since he passed, and I think that's partly because uh, Nick touched everybody uh, at some point in this sport, and and I'm no different, obviously not as a player, um, but I did I, I started to work with Nick in the mid to late '90s, right during and after my ESPN time. I helped him produce a series of videos, instructional videos. I did the voiceovers for them. So I had, I was down in Bradenton for a period of weeks and then we did some stuff at a studio in New York, but I got to know Nick through that. And then we, you know, as he was with everybody, uh, we remained friendly over the years and um, he had this way of <laughs> making you feel like you were way more important to him than, than I clearly was in reality. But then that, that got renewed when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame and I was uh, part of the enshrinement ceremonies and, and got to spend time with, with him and his family. And I, I also 
have friends down at the academy. So I, I just have been tangentially, not the way to play. I mean, I, I'm not trying to overstate it. The, I, the, the Anacones and the Couriers and the Wheatons and the those guys are the ones who lived there and, and lived. I, I just had a very tan, but he made me feel like I was a bigger deal to him than than I was. And uh, he was inspired. I texted with him uh, as recently as last week. And um, you're right. Uh, when I think about a contributor who, des who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, could there be anyone more deserving? He, he changed the paradigm of the way that the sport was taught. The academy concept would not exist if not for him. He did not have, as, as they say, a great stick, but he taught so many. He was inspirational. He was the Pied Piper of the sport. He was magnetic and charismatic and um, a leader, a leader of people uh, in the truest sense of that term. And um, what, what, what a towering figure in tennis and kind and always a laugh. And um, I, 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 it, it hurts beyond measure that he's gone. Well said. We'll, we'll miss you, Nick. And, and with that, Brett, thanks for spending time and talking with both Steve and I. This was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, thank you very much. And uh, Steve, always a privilege. I, I look forward to sharing a bowl of chowder with you in Newport this summer. <laughs> we would do that, Brett. We will do it. Call me anytime. This is fun. Thanks, guys.